Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Through fresh eyes, there's a lot that's unusual about American life and culture, from bloated wallets and giant cars to the emphasis on self. Somehow, from the moment I had arrived in May 1985, I was taking notes. From the New England News Collaborative, this is Next. Writer Roya Hakakian shares those keen observations in her new book. And people with Down syndrome are prone to serious illness if they develop COVID-19. We'll hear the story of a Massachusetts man who got and beat the virus. At first, I said, why me? Why I have COVID? Plus, singer New Raza integrates musical traditions from around the world to find her sound. Having them fit perfectly, it's, it's almost like the sounds found home to me. It's next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, 10 public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Morgan Springer. Thanks for joining us. It's been a year since COVID-19 was officially classified as a pandemic, upending our lives in New England and around the world. Today, we begin the show with the story of a family in Connecticut. Early in the pandemic, they all got sick with COVID. Then, in the midst of that, they welcomed a newborn baby. Connecticut Public Radio's Brenda Leon has the story of their resilience and the teacher who stepped in to care for the baby while the family recovered from the virus. Suli doesn't remember how she became infected with the virus last year. Suli is seeking asylum in the U.S. and has requested we use her first name only. She's a stay-at-home mom and was eight months pregnant early in the pandemic when her seven-year-old son and husband caught the virus. One day, when she went to her prenatal appointment, she was refused entry because she had a fever. The next day, she was taken by an ambulance and underwent an emergency C-section. In the following weeks, she was in a coma. She doesn't remember giving birth and wasn't able to hug her newborn son. When she finally woke up, she couldn't remember a call she made to her son's teacher, known as Miss Lira. Suli says when the pandemic started, Ms. Lira told her to call for whatever she needed. And when baby Nasal was born, Suli's husband and son were still COVID positive. They couldn't bring home the newborn baby and risk infecting him too. So Ms. Lira took baby Nasal to her home. When Suli was discharged from the hospital, she was still testing positive for COVID-19. It was another 15 days before she tested negative, and baby Nasal was with Ms. Lira the whole time. Suli recalls the day she and her family went to pick up the baby. She remembers thinking, what do I wear? How do I go? How will I hold him? When they 
arrived at Ms. Lira's house, they called Suli's mother in Guatemala, where cases of COVID were also on the rise. Suli came from Champerico, Guatemala, only a year before the pandemic started. Through a video call in Ms. Lira's living room, the family gathered in prayer. Suli says her mother's biggest fear was losing her only daughter. To this day, Suli is recovering. She says there are still after effects in her body, numbness in her left foot, and walking is difficult. Her voice is raspy when she speaks. Her lungs are weak from the ventilator. Still, in her recovery, Suli's joyous to be alive and describes Miss Lira as a guardian angel sent to care for her family. On April 2nd, baby Nasal will be one year old. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Brenda Leon. Suli's story is part of a new special from Connecticut Public on the cost of COVID. We'll have a link to the video at our website, nextnewengland.org. Many of us have heard about the risk factors for coronavirus. The list from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention includes conditions like cancer and heart disease. There's a recent addition you might not have heard about. It's Down syndrome. People with Down syndrome are prone to serious illness, even death, if they develop COVID-19. So many are now among the early vaccine recipients, including in Massachusetts. WBUR's Callum Borschers introduces us to one man. Jonathan Durr is 41. He lives on Cape Cod, works at a grocery store, and he's a big 90s wrestling fan. Most of my favorites are John Cena, The Rock, Stone Cold. That's John Cena, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and Stone Cold Steve Austin for the uninitiated. Durr had plenty of time to watch wrestling reruns when he was laid up with COVID-19 in January. At first, I said, why me? Why I have COVID? It's like, the cold, no chills, fever, headaches. Did you know when you got sick that having Down syndrome made you perhaps more susceptible to, to being ill, that, that it, it could be particularly dangerous to have COVID-19 because I, you have Down syndrome? I heard about, I heard about it because we have friends that, who have Down syndrome also, but... Durr didn't give up, even during a scary stretch that included a trip to Brigham and Women's Hospital. His mother, Joanne Simons, runs the Northeast chapter of ARC, a national advocacy group for people with developmental disabilities. I was terrified when uh, Jonathan's test came back positive. Sort of, I went into this, you know, really high alarm mode because it was becoming clear that adults with Down syndrome, especially men over 40, were at highest risk for um, morbidity and mortality from COVID. Simons says people often think of Down syndrome as an intellectual disability without realizing that it's caused by an extra chromosome, which can also lead to other health complications. And Jonathan, if you look at the list of CDC comorbidity factors, has about six of them. Um, He has uh, a pulmonary valve that's been replaced. He has congenital heart disease. He has... um, ventricular tachycardia. He has a defibrillator, all of which singularly are factors. In addition, he has some uh, lung disease. So when he was, uh, when he, I learned that he was positive, it, I tried very hard and successfully not to read the studies because they were becoming well publicized the week of his diagnosis. And uh, I have since read them. 
And of course, it would have made me even more nervous. One of those studies in the UK suggested people with Down syndrome are 10 times more likely than the general population to die from COVID-19. Durr and his mother believe he may have recovered well because he exercised regularly before contracting the virus. He's now back to using a treadmill and elliptical. Oh, and no, I forgot. I do Special Olympics. And you do Special Olympics. Which yeah. events? Basketball, track, golf in the summer, and soccer in the fall. Durr recently got his second vaccine dose. He says the shots hurt, but the pain is nothing a little ibuprofen can't relieve. He hopes to be on the soccer field and back to other team sports soon. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Callum Borchers. For more than a century now, the New England triple-decker has been home to immigrants and blue-collar middle-class families. But these days, the triple-decker is about more than housing. An increasing number of advocates say the quintessential New England building could play a role in the region's fight against climate change. WBUR's Simone Rios reports from Massachusetts. Standing in front of her three-level house in Somerville, Lena Sheehan looked down at the construction of a new high school and transportation hub just a block away. I can't get over it. I haven't been here in so long. Is that right? Well, this, this is the new tea. Isn't that brilliant? Right beside That's the crazy. house. That's crazy, yeah. That's fantastic. Soon after immigrating from Ireland, Sheehan and her husband bought this property on School Street in the late 90s against the advice of friends. It was a crazy idea, really, because Somerville wasn't the place it is now. And, you know, we were very young and naive. And so it was, it was such a big risk. Sheehan started to feel like buying the building was the right move when she saw a good omen. Her husband found an album of old Irish music a previous tenant had left behind and played her a song. It's not a very nice song, but he played it. And the two of us were dancing around in the living room and we were laughing. And I remember thinking, OK, that has to be a good sign. You know, maybe this wasn't a terrible mistake after all. The Sheehan's bet on Somerville paid off. The city started to gentrify, and three decades of rent from the three-decker allowed them to buy two more rental properties and their family home in Newton. Aside from being an economic engine for families like Sheehan's, the thousands of triple-deckers across Massachusetts have a new significance to the climate. State officials say if we're going to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, as Governor Charlie Baker has set out to do, triple-deckers like Lena Sheehan's have to play a role. State Environment Chief Katie Theoharides says the houses of today are here to stay, and they need to be upgraded. So being able to sort of reshape that building stock and make sure it is in a condition where it can save people money um, through energy efficiency and really be a comfortable uh, a comfortable place to live is, is a key part of this work. Buildings are responsible for more than a quarter of the state's greenhouse gas emissions, and residential buildings with three or less units make up the bulk of those emissions. Steve Pike, head of the Massachusetts Clean Energy Center, says the clock is ticking toward 2050, and the pace of retrofitting needs to pick up. At this point, we're probably doing a couple thousand a year, uh, to a 2050 standard, we need to be doing roughly 100,000 homes a, uh, a year. And so where do you start with that? One place to start is with our old friend, the three-decker. And the solution du jour is a so-called deep energy retrofit. 
That means insulating the entire building, sealing off any air leaks, and installing more sophisticated HVAC systems, ideally powered by solar panels. Easier said than done. Triple-deckers weren't built for energy efficiency, and making them so is a challenge. That's why the state recently hosted a competition to generate ideas. Travis Anderson is a local designer with the design-build firm Placetailor, specializing in energy-efficient buildings. He says retrofitting a triple-decker is like turning an old station wagon into a modern electric vehicle. Instead of just trading the car in for a brand new one, we're kind of stuck with having to figure this out. Full disclosure, two years ago I hired Placetailor for help with a renovation. Anderson worked with experts at UMass Amherst on a submission to the triple-decker design competition. Their proposal looks like a cross between 21st century modern and the classic three-decker we all know, featuring special window panels that let in light and collect solar energy. It was just one of more than a dozen solutions to transform a triple-decker. But the question for any of them is feasibility. Who's able to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on a deep energy retrofit? Out in Worcester, Taylor Bearden thought he found a way to make it work. I'm going to take you in the basement here first. Because the basement shows some of the features that we're talking about. Watch your step. Bearden is a co-owner of Civico Development, a company that's acquired 18 triple-deckers in Worcester with the goal of making them as efficient as possible. All the old wiring is gone. The heating systems... And the hot water, everything is brand new. All the plumbing is brand new. We're not going to have... Bearden says his company goes all in on retrofitting their triple-deckers, insulating basements and upgrading to efficient furnaces. And they found a way to do it while making profit. But there's a wrinkle. Bearden started buying and renovating in Worcester in 2017. Just four years later, he says the finances will no longer work. Housing prices have gone up so much, there's little money left for improvements. No, this was possible because of the time in the market. Say, for example, 50 cents of every dollar went to acquisition and 50 cents went to renovation. In current market, maybe 10 cents of every dollar could go to renovation. And that's not a recipe for making better housing. Monday is our day to close in the wall. So a construction supervisor updates Bearden on the status of their 18th triple-decker renovation in Worcester. The cost for gutting and retrofitting the 18-unit building is estimated at a million dollars. But Bearden estimates as many as 6,000 triple-deckers would benefit from the same kind of investment. And that's just in Worcester. There's an array of incentives aimed at helping builders build green. But experts say if the state's housing stock is going to reach carbon neutrality by 2050, it's going to take billions in subsidies. Now that we know how to retrofit a triple-decker, the question is, how are we going to pay for it? For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Simone Rios. Back in February, we asked you, our listeners, if you've experienced any unexpected bright spots during this pandemic. Recently, we got a call from Linda Goodspeed, a writer from Rutland, Vermont. Like everyone else, 2020 was was a tough year for me. It started out in January 2020. Goodspeed says she suffered a bad knee injury and lost someone dear to her to COVID. And then, of course, we had just so many losses, restaurants, lunches, coffee shops, get-togethers, lectures, concerts, outdoor concerts, theater, movies. But then 
in November, everything turned around. I am totally blind, and I got my first seeing-eye dog in November in New Jersey, and she has been such a blessing. We wanted to learn more about Linda's experience with her new guide dog, so I called her up. Her dog's name is Tessa, and she's about two years old. She just has the sweetest personality. She's so much fun. She just is so loving, and yeah, she's been one of the best things I've ever done in my life, I would say. Wow, that's amazing. And so what was it like for you before you had her? Well, I lost my sight as an adult, and before I had her, well, blindness is a very isolating condition. You know, I had to give up driving, and, you know, you just get more and more isolated as you lose more and more sight. So I was a cane user. When I did get out, I would use a cane or a sighted guide to help me around. So really, Tessa has given me more independence. We get out every day and walk, and she's also an icebreaker. You know, people just gravitate to dogs, and, you know, I would be walking down the street and not even know that other people were on the street or across the street from me or anything. Now everybody says hi to me because of of Tessa. And uh, so it's been quite a joy to get out with her. She's very loving. She'll actually put her paws on my shoulders and give me a hug. <laughs> She's oh, just that's great. so sweet. <laughs> Yeah, we have a lot of fun together, and like I said, everybody loves her, and to have that companionship and to love another creature and have that love return to you is is wonderful. That was listener Linda Goodspeed of Rutland, Vermont, talking about her seeing-eye dog, Tessa. After the break, experiencing the U.S. as an immigrant. We talked to writer Roya Hakakian about her arrival in the country in the 80s and her keen observations on American culture. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate change and the evolving clean energy economy. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. Welcome back. I'm Morgan Springer. Our next guest is Roya Hakakian. She's an author, Persian poet, and writing instructor at Yale University. Her new book is called A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. In it, she talks directly to people immigrating to the U.S. about the experience. Her writing captures the emotional journey and what she calls the common drama of displacement. She also shares powerful observations about American culture, from the strangeness of people smiling all the time to the emphasis on I, the self. Roya Hakakian, I'm so looking forward to this conversation. Thank you for coming on next. Uh, delighted to be with you and delighted to be with your audience. So before we dig into the book, um, I want to talk about your journey of coming to the U.S. from Iran. Can you tell us about your birth country? What do you remember about life there? Well, um, I was 12 years old when 
the revolution swept through Iran in 1979 and life as we knew it ended and uh, something very different began, which made life as we knew it uh, completely unpleasant after about a year or two. And um, we were eventually forced to leave. My mother and I left in 1984, in the middle of 1984. And my father, who could not leave with us, left by being smuggled into Pakistan several years later and was reunited with us after five years. And and how old were you when you left? I had just finished high school, so I was 18 years old. And um, subsequently, we went from Iran to Europe to try to figure out how to get to America. It was not all that easy and planned out, unfortunately. And, and what was it like when you first arrived in the U.S. to this different place? It's really interesting. Um, I arrived in 1985, so that is um, a whole lifetime ago. But I talked to a friend of mine, somebody who came from Iran only four years ago, and I was kind of comparing notes with her to see how she felt. And she said precisely how I had felt all those years ago. And it was, I feel like I walked through a fog for the first six months or maybe even longer. And that's really um, how I can describe it. I was physically half sleep. It was a never-ending jet lag. And then because I had no English, people sounded strange and muffled. And I remember precisely, and this is a scene I recount in the book, that I sat in front of television one night because I was jet lagged and I couldn't sleep. And all I was trying to do was to find the end of the sentences that the news anchor was speaking. Because I was hearing English as one giant string of words. I couldn't tell where the sentences began or ended. And <laughs> I was relieved when the commercials came on because that, that was the only moment I knew that one sentence had ended. And that just first year was uh, was a year of somewhat of a, you know, intellectual and physical coma. Yeah, you, you write the book um, addressed to you, you know, like you walk off the plane, you get in the cab, and you meaning people who have also immigrated to this country. But as you say in the subtitle, it's also for the curious. And, and you do such an incredible job of capturing the unusual things in the U.S., at least unusual based on the immigrant perspective. And, and one observation that I really love has to do with the phrase, take care of yourself. You write, take care of yourself conveys so much more of this nation's spirit than all the lessons you will learn in acculturation class, unquote. So this phrase, how is this different from many other cultures? Well, <laughs> first and foremost, in the culture that I come from and in most other cultures similar to mine, there is no acknowledging the self because these are cultures that organize themselves around community, around ideology, around religion, uh, around leader. So the self has to subject itself 
himself or herself to the bigger cause. So to think that the American farewell tells, reminds another person that the self is important and needs to be taken care of is just an enormous difference. So I remember, remember my first reaction to my first take care of yourself was, uh, is there something that I should be worried about? Um, is something <laughs> bad about to happen? And then I realized that, no, 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 the, you know, there is no danger. There, this is not a warning. This is simply to say, you know, be good, you know, be, be kind to yourself and tend to yourself, which I think is among the many beautiful, unbelievable, and uniquely American things that most native-born take for granted or cannot even recognize as unusual and exceptional. That's so interesting for you to say that because when I think about, you know, what you're saying, I'm like, oh, God, so selfish, so self-involved. But you have such a positive perspective on it. Is there a tension there? I can see why you feel the way you feel, but you also have to see that if we didn't have that emphasis on the self, we wouldn't have a democracy. We wouldn't have women's rights. We wouldn't have a civil rights movement. That in order for all these wonderful things to come about, the things that, you know, I didn't have in my country of origin, you need to begin with a sense that the self has rights and the self deserves to have those rights. Now, what you raise is, are we overemphasizing the self? In our times, I think we are, and I think you are too. But I think we have to distinguish between the overemphasis and the recognition that the self needed to be there for everything else to be built around it. Hmm. I love that perspective. Um, now, your observations in the book can be very pointed. You know, they're at times an invitation to re-examine what are considered norms in the U.S. Um, They can also be funny, like how cars are so huge. You might wonder if giants live in this country, Um, how Americans are praised for just existing, like a kid will get a good job just for for going down the slide. And you also write, quote, perfectly good rags land in the trash because feather dusters and high-performance microfiber cloth have elevated dusting from a mere daily chore to domestic combat. Now, as I was reading these, I found myself wondering, how do you hold on to all of this? Or how did you hold on to all of this so that it found its way into the book? This is a wonderful question, because I had to think about that myself. Because as I sat down to write this book, it all came crashing at me. And then I realized that somehow from the moment I had arrived in May 1985, I was taking notes. And it probably sounds like I have excellent memory. I don't. I have a terrible memory. <laughs> but, but somehow I think this was such a priority from the moment I arrived that I thought to myself, I have to record this. I have to commit everything to memory because this is really important. 
And for some reason, I thought I was the conduit of something. I am not sure what, but I, I felt that it fell on me to, to make these observations and then to, to convey these observations at some point to someone. And so when, strangely, in 2016, I felt that I had an urge or there was urgency for me to write, they all came and they were just strangely and miraculously available to me. Hmm. That's incredible. The book goes through stages of life as an immigrant in this country. In part one, it's more that early entry time, like what you might notice and feel on your first trip to the grocery store. Um, And then in part two, the immigrant has been in the U.S. for a while And I'd love if you would read the very beginning of chapter six, which I think really highlights this phase. One morning you awake to realize that the days of homesickness gave way to weeks of melancholy. And the weeks of melancholy turned into months of dread. And the months of dread became the seasons, then the first year, and then years of separation from all that you never thought you could separate from. There is no beating around this bush. The journey to America hollowed you out, but has it filled you up too? Inside there is a gnawing that you cannot articulate. Anything you might say to describe it will sound strange, like the ground on which I once stood is now askew. Puzzling, but true. As appearances go, you look like you've gotten on fine. There are many ways you might realize that you are no longer a helpless, newly arrived immigrant, but an established resident instead. It may happen when you cannot remember the date according to the calendar of your former homeland. Or it may happen when a co-worker leaves on your desk a newspaper clipping about the recent elections in your birth country, and reading it, you do not recognize any of the candidates. Or it may happen when you refuse to stomach a nosy relative's prying into your personal affairs and demand that he respect your privacy. At hearing this, the relative will jeer, Privacy? Good God, you've become an American. Or it may happen when, standing in the cashier's line at the supermarket, you see that your old coin purse is now a formidable wallet, bloated, just like a proper American wallet, it's every pocket stuffed with a credit card or a scan card, all qualifying you as a first-rate consumer, the gold standard of assimilation. This plastic inheritance belongs to you, who did not have a single card when you arrived. Or it may happen, most dramatically of all, in an encounter with plain-spoken new arrivals from your birth country. In them, you see your fresh-off-the-boat self, and in you, they see their own future. Nostalgia drives you to them. Fear of becoming permanent exiles like you drives them away from you. Meeting them brings home better than any other experience how far you have come, which in their eyes, at that moment, is too far. You know, as I'm hearing you read this, I I hear this tension between losing aspects of your first country and 
gaining aspects of this country. Am I right about that? Am I reading that right? Absolutely. You know, you you always want to feel that you have kept your ties intact or that your humanity has not uh, diminished uh, as a result of, you know, going from one country to the next. And I think it's it becomes very important or very challenging to make sure that you keep the good parts and you assimilate or assume the good parts here and you kind of somehow maintain and inherit the best of both worlds. And and it's a very difficult math to, to configure. And I think some of us fail. Uh, some of us succeed more than others. And I think some of us take some time to figure it out. But um, hopefully it comes uh, in the end to all of us. Hmm. Yeah, you write that years will pass, but that you will, quote, always remain the refugee, the immigrant, the one who crossed into a new land, unquote. Talk about that feeling, because I feel like that adds another layer to what we've been talking about. Yes, you know, it's, it was something that uh, even I wasn't so aware of until 2016. I was born and raised in Iran, and then I came to America, and now I'm Iranian-American, and that's who I am. That's the end of it. But as soon as there was talk against or about immigrants and refugees, my ears perked, and I started listening in a, in a very different and personal way. I felt that it was an offense against me. And, and I was quite stunned because I didn't think that there was yet one layer to me that I wasn't aware of, that I was somehow, in my own mind, a permanently a refugee or a permanently a, an immigrant. And, and as I took offense, I realized that a part of me um, feels that I am an immigrant, that something about that experience, however brief it was, was so deep and so indelible that it has marked me just like any other identifier about me. And so I carry it with me. And it's precisely why I decided to write, because I thought I had to explain uh, who I am, not as a woman or as an, as an American or as an Iranian, but as an immigrant, as a refugee. Roya Hakakian is an author, poet, and writing instructor at Yale University. Her new book is called A Beginner's Guide to America for the Immigrant and the Curious. The push to get more students back into the classroom instead of remote continues. In Manchester, New Hampshire, the city wants to reopen schools four days a week starting in May. This experiment is well underway at West High School, where staff have been encouraging those four in-person days for students who are learning English as a second language and others needing extra help. But as New Hampshire Public Radio's Sarah Gibson reports, it's requiring a big effort to get students re-engaged a year into the pandemic. Please get close for taking temperature. Okay. okay. Normal temperature. When Sultan Abdulaziz walks into school, his first stop, a temperature station in the front lobby. Abdulaziz, a senior, is well known here at West. Hey, how are we, buddy? I'm good in here. 
His nickname is The Mayor because he's conversational in so many languages. Sindhi, Urdu, Arabic, Hindi, that in class he can joke around with students from all over the world. His family came here from the United Arab Emirates five years ago, and he credits the school for helping him overcome his shyness. When I came here, I was a shy boy. I used to be shy slowly, slowly. I love talking now. See, I talk like a parrot. Every time, cut, 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 cut. Abdulaziz loves the connections he has with teachers and friends here. But these days, he's rarely in the building. He says he and his family are terrified of catching COVID-19. So in addition to logging into his classes, he's been overseeing his siblings' virtual learning. He's one of the oldest of eight kids. His younger sisters often need his help. There's one, she's super genius. She's awesome. Sometimes she needs help. She will come to me, but she's genius. Another one, she closed her computer. She's sleeping. Staying awake and motivated in virtual class can be hard, especially if you're still learning how to speak and read English. And Abdulaziz is falling behind. Recently, his teachers called him and his mom with an interpreter. They said, if you fail any of your classes, you're not going to graduate this year. And they said they could help more if he came back to school four days a week. But Abdulaziz is juggling a lot of obligations in addition to school. He works full-time at a restaurant. I work uh, 45 hours, more than that. But here's the deal. I have a big dream also, which is like I want to pay for my car. I want to pay for the Wi-Fi. I want to pay for the electricity bill. Pay for the electricity bill. Maybe even save up for college. But with some coaxing from his teachers, Sultan Abdulaziz made a commitment. Start going to school on a regular basis. Hey, uh, Mary, do you know where Sultan is? West Principal Richard Deschard is one of the many staff hoping this new goal sticks. Once you get someone like Sultan back engaged, and then they and you formulate a plan for them, generally speaking, they follow it and get to where they need to get to. Right now, about half of the students at West have opted to stay fully remote. But in the last month, a growing number has been coming in four days a week. And Deschart says the key to keeping them here relationships, individual relationships, establishing that one, two, three adults, maybe more, that a student can go to and feel comfortable with. For Abdulaziz, many of those adults are in the English language learning program. One of them is his teacher, Angelina Gillespie. When I walked into their classroom a few weeks ago, students were listening to a rap in Arabic about the coronavirus and reading aloud about leadership skills. A few were getting one-on-one help for their general classes like history and math. In the corner, there were boxes of food and clothing for students to take home, provided each week by the district and local nonprofits. Gillespie says these non-academic needs are part of what she and her colleagues try to help with when their students show up. I'm thinking to myself, like, okay, you know, when am I going to see the student? The next time that I see the student, what do I need to get for him or her? I need to check in with them to see if they need clothes. I need to check in with them to see how their mother is doing. They often have conversations with their older students like Abdulaziz, who are taking on major family obligations, including jobs during the pandemic. So we'll say something like, we know that you have been working full time and it's so difficult to work full time and do your schoolwork. 
But if you want to graduate, you need to do the work. Abdulaziz is supposed to graduate this June, but on the day I visited, he wasn't in school. The teacher said they're not sure what kept him home, but they'll keep reaching out. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Sarah Gibson. Coming up, musician Yu Raza reflects on how ideas of home have shaped the sound in her new album. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative in its coverage of climate and clean energy. Okay, we're back. This is New Raza singing the song Madagascar from her new album. It's called Mm-hmm and is her first full-length record. New lives in Somerville, Massachusetts. Welcome to Next. Hello, Morgan. Thank you for having me. And so, New, you went to Berklee College of Music in Boston, and as I just said, you're now living in Massachusetts, but you're originally from Madagascar. Can you talk about what home means in this song that we just heard? Home was always in all these places I've lived. And I guess home is always where your heart and spirit and the people you love are. They remind me of my grandma's cooking. You feel like my African sun. You want me up when I'm freezing. Oh, baby, baby, you make me feel like home. Oh, baby, baby, you make me feel like home. What are the cultural influences behind this song? So, the cultural influence. If you listen to the beginning, there is like a traditional singing from the southern part of Madagascar that I, I kind of took and made it the intro. And it's also the bridge that carries out because a lot of sound that we do is a lot of voices, mainly the Malagasy traditional way of singing. And I wanted to implement that traditional sound into the modern sound which is very much now like pop music around the world today which is kind of a mix of afrobeat and i tried to basically put in some old elements to the new elements to the music industry right now and it gave madagascar <laughs> yeah as you're blending these different musical traditions did you discover anything new in the joining of them I feel like everything, it was all about experimenting and trying to match sounds that were never really matched before or people have tried and I wanted to make it my way. It took me a couple of years to really find or create that kind of sound. But finding the match between the rhythm in some, even some of the songs and having them fit perfectly it's it's almost like the sounds found home to me yeah well you can definitely hear that blend now now when you were a kid did you consider a career in music no so I was always in some sort of healing space because both my parents are doctors and so I always wanted to be a healer I found myself loving music deeply and I thought about music therapy and that was one of the main reasons 
I came to Berkeley, but then I started singing, and then I realized that there is so much in the music that can heal, and so I decided to write more songs that are relatable. I've heard that when people listen to um, Madagascar and some people hear it, even if they're not necessarily from Madagascar, a lot of immigrants, it makes them feel or nostalgic about where they are originally from or where their parents are from or their grandparents. And I feel like it's such a beautiful connection to be able to make people feel that in on that deeper level. Yeah. Let's listen to another song off your album. This one is called Babu. So I'm hearing romance, feelings in this song, and a lot of songs on the album. What's the story behind Babu? First of all, Babu means head over heels. And it's exactly that moment. It's kind of when you're flirting with someone, but it's nothing serious yet. But you know that you like, really, really, really like that person, but it's not love. And is, is there a personal story behind this? It's mostly the whole point about it is a conversation between myself and how you fall in love with yourself again. Hmm. Say, say more about that, you know, falling in love with yourself again. Babu talks about falling for someone else, but also like letting yourself be loved in, in a sense accepting that you're worthy, accepting that you can be attractive. Yeah, a song that seems to capture that so well on the album is your song, So Damn Beautiful. Let's take a listen. So I'm hearing those kind of two things there. You're, you know, you're building up women. Maybe it's yourself, too. You're, you're saying, girl, you make the world go round. Be the queen. I always knew. Yes, you are. But then there's also the don't you look down getting shy when you're passing a crowd. So talk about this this feeling. Like, is this something you've worked through yourself of feeling 
not worthy enough or not like you're not enough and you need to build yourself up yeah this is definitely a song that i feel like a lot of people mainly a lot of women relate to i think since its release but it's been mostly a song that i used to motivate myself whenever i feel down and i really wrote that for me as my little empowering motivational song and yes these are things that i personally have felt like i think at some point in our lives we've compared ourselves to other people our progress our skin our weight i everything sometimes you have to look at yourself in the mirror and it's i guess your i am enough song to remind yourself that you're beautiful in so many ways and that you're unique and I originally wanted to entitle the album Diary because it's so many deep part of myself that I I gave to the world. Why did you decide mhm instead? I feel like it's a worldwide thing that we can agree on. And so since all these songs sometimes are in other languages, but the emotions are there, you can still feel something. And that's why I chose mhm because every time I listen to a song it's like I've been there mhm and I've also <laughs> felt that mhm and it's like I wanted to reach like a point of understanding with the other person like I acknowledge your story and probably this is my story and probably you can feel the same New Raza's new album is called Mhm she's based in Somerville Massachusetts thank you so much for coming on next it's been so nice talking with you Thank you for having me. Oh, I'm ready. Oh, I've been ready. Oh, I've been grinding. Oh, I've been working. I come from far. My home called Madagascar. My people sing when they work hard. We don't catch where they got hard. It made me tough. It made me strong. It made me win. I know I'm loved, but I feel blessed. It made me dream. It made me move like I can speak of anything. I feel empowered like a leader, like a queen. Can't see distractions because I zoom in on my own that's a wrap on our show this week. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search Next New England. Next is produced by me, Morgan Springer, and Lily Tyson. Vanessa De La Torre is our executive editor. The executive producer is Katie Tolarski. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Media, CAI, WBUR, WSHU, GBH, and the Public's Radio.